0: helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Welcome, everybody, once again to the Group Practice Accelerator podcast, another note-taking episode at hand, and another episode devoted to so many of you data heads out there metrics analytics (laughs) all the numbers behind the numbers uh that we tend to provide and that so many of you know and love i'm going to revisit the top 10 metrics to measure in your group practice and i'm not only going to tell you what those metrics are i'm going to tell you how to think about them and why they're important in the group that you're operating and certainly the group that you're building as i said get your pad and pen ready to take some notes brew another wonderful cup of that meal coffee maybe from valentine's roasters in wisconsin thanks a lot max my from ascendant help for sharing some with me i'm enjoying a cup right now stay tuned the group practice accelerator podcast is on the air well welcome everybody once again to the group practice accelerator podcast i appreciate you joining me on the show today I appreciate you being a listener and a subscriber. I appreciate all of the compliments and the fanfare that we get on all of our content, but especially on the podcast. I'm going to do a recap at the end of this uh, episode about the Building Your Enterprise Platform event that we just finished hosting in Fort, lovely Fort Lauderdale, give you a little bit of insights and the key, a few key takeaways from that event, but for all the people in attendance uh, that shared some conversations, stories, and and the compliments that you shared about uh, our podcast in particular. We genuinely appreciate it. Uh, we value it. We do work very hard at this podcast and uh, providing the content that's useful uh, for you. And certainly we appreciate you sharing it Um, With so many of your colleagues, that's the way we build our network. That's we the way we grow our audience. And whenever uh, somebody tells me, "Yeah, so and so turned me on to your podcast," not too long ago, and I've downloaded every episode, (laughs) that tells me we're doing something right. So let's dig into uh, some of the metrics to measure in group practices. And let me start this by saying that um, building a group practice, there are what seems like a million metrics kpis analytics dashboard results to be able to monitor um on a daily monthly weekly basis um you do run the risk of paralysis through analysis Um, and i want to say that because all too often we find that the people uh who have uh, some type of Excel file that has the top 179 metrics to measure in their practice. Uh, they're losing the forest through the trees. So I think there's a healthy balance, and it can be different for every practice or every group. There's a healthy balance between too much analysis and too little analysis. Um, and I I actually tend to err on the side of less is more. Okay, so having more metrics does not mean that you're better at operating your business. All too often, you can get myopic, for lack of a better term. And I, what I mean by that is uh, you tend to focus on too much of what's happened in the past or what's happening on a day to day basis. And you're not paying attention as the leader of the business to where you're going to be three to 12 to 36 months out. And that's the critical thing. When we talk about metrics a lot, you hear, Uh, DeWalker and I talk about historical context and then predictive context. Predictive is understanding the way to uh, work with your accounting firm on your uh, P&L, your financial statements, uh, and understanding where the business is going to end up, not just at the end of the month, but possibly at the end of the year. Uh, And some of the day-to-day metrics that you measure yield that. They may not be on financial statements, don't get me wrong. But the the key here is that if you're simply relying on dashboards to look at what has already transpired, or you're only reading um, your operating statements a couple of weeks after the month closes in terms of what you did last month, then you're not really in control of the the forward look to the business um, because everything you're looking at, you can't adjust. Uh, And that's a significant shift in a mindset in terms of how you operate a business. We'll get into... um, Financial statement analysis at some point down the road. And we'll do a little bit of compare and contrast on profit and loss versus balance sheet. And this is also a, a shift in focus um, uh, in a growing business. But let's dig into a couple of metrics that are near and dear to us uh, at Polaris and give you some context. Um, and I think there is a PDF that you can download off of our website. I should have checked that before recording this uh, episode, but maybe we can link to it in the show notes. So, first and foremost uh revenue and revenue generation um i've done some podcasts i've done some videos on utilization rate and utilization rate is critically important uh, in a group practice because it enables you to take better advantage of the fixed capacity and fixed cost structure of the business. That is why this is so critically important. It's making the most of your productive hour of availability in the business. In a group practice, it's obvious that, and if you look at a solo practice, they're they're typically open Monday through Thursday, eight to five or something like that. But in a group practice, you're pouring more marketing dollars, hopefully, into generating more new patients. And through that, you can generate more demand. And hopefully, uh, you can also recruit and retain um, associates. And therefore, you can expand the hours in the day that you're open. You can expand the days in the week that you're open uh, and possibly even the weeks in the month and the months in the year. So you can unlock additional capacity of the business um, to, to generate more patient flow and more revenue. When you do that, it's critically important to understand the dollar value per chair per hour in terms of uh revenue that you're generating for the business. It's not just a matter of staying open more days and more week more weeks uh and, and doing less value treatment. That's kind of counterproductive. What you want to do is be open more days and more hours uh, for to attract more patients into the business and maintain or increase the productivity of the business on a per chair per hour basis. And that is what utilization rate is all about. In a general dentistry uh, practice, or general dentistry group, excuse me, the number we're shooting for is about $125 to $175 per chair per hour, $125 to $175 per chair per hour. And the way we we get to that number is we take our number of chairs, Times the number of days per week, our number of hours per day, number of days per week, number of weeks per year, and get a total available capacity in terms of chair hours per year, and then we divide that into the total revenue of the business. And in a general dentistry group, we want that to be around 100, or somewhere between 125 and 175 dollars per chair per hour. Specialty group probably about fifty dollars per chair per hour higher. Obviously, more is better um, in both contexts. I mean, uh, but this is this is a measure of gaining maximum utilization out of the available capacity of when the business is open, and that's critically important. And it's a sort of a unique way of measuring revenue in a group practice context. EBITDA margins, we talk a lot about EBITDA dollars because EBITDA dollars influence valuation for either buy-in or earn-in from associates and certainly valuation for exit strategy. That being said, while you're focused on EBITDA dollars, it's not just a matter of the dollars you're generating, but the margin at which you're generating them. Um, A business that runs low EBITDA margins uh, is going to be kind of a rat race, honestly, because you're operating in the sales cover sins mentality, whereas a business that generates higher EBITDA margins has a more efficient cost structure and hopefully is ultimately more scalable, assuming that you can generate the patient flows for it. So every incremental... uh, percent of cost reduction is critically important because that does that does uh, equate to more EBITDA dollars and every EBITDA dollar in a group practice is valued at six times or more so the magnitude of the impact of marginal improvement adds up and adds up very very quickly in a group practice context Ah, uh, for general dentistry at least, we look for clients to be in the high teens to mid twenties of an EBITDA of a consolidated EBITDA margin. If you want to use twenty percent as the number, that's probably fine. Again, usually speaking, more is better, um, but that can have uh, uh, diminishing returns at some point. For our context today. High teens to mid 20s, 18 to 25% is the range. And for general dentistry, if you want to just plant a flag at 20% as a goal, that's probably not bad. Uh, and once again, in a specialty context, probably about three to five percent higher in terms of that range. So low to high 20s, in other words, uh, for a a a pure play specialty uh group practice. This is again ultimately a, a a report card um on your ability as an operator to manage an efficient cost structure take costs out of the business when and where you can uh, and ultimately not uh operate on the working harder not smarter philosophy if you're able to generate the utilization rate that i mentioned in point number one and do it at a low ebitda margin you you don't have full control of the business The reverse of that is if you're generating high EBITDA margins and low uh, utilization rate, that typically means that you're struggling to grow the revenue line of the business and you've got the cost structure ratcheted down so much that you might make a good case that you need to invest more in the growth of the business um, uh, or invest more back into the business for growth purposes, i.e. marketing. So we, we tend to talk about uh, utilization rate and EBITDA margin, um, as uh, we we tend to talk ab- about them in combination, if you will, and we refer to that uh, as the Polaris scalability metrics. Uh, matrix uh, Polaris scalability matrix. If you're curious about that, I've recorded a, a podcast previously on the scalability mat- matrix, and there is also a video on our YouTube channel uh, that, for those who get our news feed, hopefully all of you are getting our news feed, um, uh, would also see on that. By the way, if you're not getting our news feed, you need to go back. You either need to send an email. Um, uh, and resubscribe to it, uh, we can opt you back in for that, or you need to subscribe to it off of our website. But our newsfeed has a lot of video content that supports a lot of what we talk about in the podcast. That's just an additional plug for it. Okay, so now that we talked about utilization rate and EBITDA margins, let's talk about growth for a second. Uh, and I'm talking about revenue growth on, on the top end of the business. If you are buying and building new practices uh, every year, it stands to reason that you're generating new and additional revenue that is uh, reflected in the top end growth numbers of the consolidated business. That being said, when we work with clients, both in a consulting capacity and in a sell-side advisory capacity, we really want to dig into the, um, uh, the revenue growth by location meaning individually and why is that important it's important once again because it's a reflection on your uh, on your ability as a business leader and an operator if you are simply relying on additional locations to grow revenue in a business uh, that has both diminishing returns at some point and it, you're in a little bit of jeopardy at, it, it, as it relates to your banking relationship meaning if the bank shuts down some of the funding then then your growth strategy grinds to a halt and your revenue uh, the impact on your revenue line uh, is fairly detrimental on the other hand, if you are adding new locations and, you're growing same store sales, meaning each of your core business locations continues to grow. Now you're really cooking with gas because you're probably increasing your EBITDA margins at a very healthy rate, and that is a very regenerative type of an economic engine for a business. So what we're looking for here is a minimum revenue growth rate of about 10% on an individual location by location count, okay? 10% uh, by an individual location, not just 10% on the combined business that would factor in new locations. The reason, again, that 10% is such an important number uh, is several fold. One, most of the analysts that follow dentistry as an industry forecast the industry to grow at about 5% annually. So you're getting some level of economic lift by just being in the business. The second thing is most group practices reinvest a healthy dollar amount into their marketing efforts. You should be able to generate uh, more new patients very effectively versus a traditional solo practice would. Um, The third thing is most group practices negotiate insurance reimbursement rates fairly consistently and to their benefit because they have negotiating power that exceeds uh, traditional solo practices. The third thing is the bigger the the group gets is the more probability or likelihood that you're gonna be able to recapture some of your specialty revenue streams that you would otherwise send out to a, a specialist. And obviously, I mentioned before that you can add headcount to the business to stay open more days and hours. Everything I just rattled off there should be impacting every one of your clinic level revenue numbers specifically. And that should be growing at twice the the combined industry average of 5%. All right. So 10% on a location by location basis uh, is the number we're looking for. Wages. Uh, It takes a team uh, to support all of our clinical efforts. And when we look at uh, the team that supports all of our um, uh, our our clinic level efforts, we want that number to be around 25 percent. This is a, a kind of a fluid number based on general dentistry versus specialty, you know, some endo practices don't have hygienists. Look, there are a lot of different things that influence this, but for for general dentistry, all non-doctor payroll wages need to be 25% or less, ideally 21 to 24% um, uh, of revenue. And for a general dentistry group, you're probably six to eight percent on office staff, six to eight percent on assistants, seven to nine percent on hygienists. So you know those are. are you can add all that up, uh, and you're probably in the the low twenties, but certainly below twenty five percent for non doctor wages. We I mentioned hygienists for a general dentistry group. Hygiene can make or break the business. It is the feeder system. It is the, um, uh, the, the floor on revenue typically for a, a general dentistry practice. Uh, and obviously hygienists are, are highly compensated. We've lost a number of them in the industry, an exodus around COVID that, Many of which have not returned, so there, there are challenges in, in the high, with hygienists specifically and in the hygiene departments overall. Uh, but the best businesses that have a a you know finely tuned, uh, highly motivated, and very effective hygiene department that works uh, congruently with the doctor handoffs and and case presentation things like that. These are businesses that generate uh, about three times wages and benefits when it comes to attributed hygiene revenue, three times wages and benefits. That's the the 3X number is really the number you're shooting for as an ultimate uh, measure of uh, hygiene department productivity, as well as individual hygienist performance. Acquisitions. Most groups are growing through acquisition but there are more and more that are uh, using a de novo approach. Uh, So we'll talk about de novos in just a second too. But for those that are acquisition oriented, um, EBITDA, every solo practice is gonna probably be listed as a percentage of collections in terms of valuation methodology. We all know that from traditional brokers for us building group practices the ultimate arbiter evaluation is multiple of ebitda so even though you may justify buying a practice as a a percentage of collections you at least need to gain clarity on what that equates to as a multiple of ebitda in our world solo practices typically value between three to five times EBITDA. For those who have been uh, followers of the podcast for a long time, you've heard us throw out that number and you've probably seen it in our presentations. It's not a new number for you, three to five times EBITDA. That being said, you need to be um, very clear about the way you calculate EBITDA for your business as well as for the practices you acquire, you may have the opportunity to buy a solo practice for more than five times EBITDA. And this would be um, a way of saying overpaying for that acquisition. Now, when we say a a solo practice values three to five times EBITDA, that's not a hard and fast rule as if to say, hey, if it's more than five times EBITDA, I'm walking away. This is a range and it has some context around it. So if you choose to acquire a practice for more than five times EBITDA, What are the ways to think about that? Well, the the first way to think about it is debt leverage. We're going to talk about that in just a second. So you want to understand how your lender, especially if you have a credit facility in place, you want to understand how your lender is going to forecast pro forma revenue and EBITDA generation in the new practice and the consolidated business. Always important to keep that in mind. We'll talk about debt leverage in a second. The second thing, though, is as an operator, a new owner of that practice that you just seemingly overpaid for, what are the area, the top two or three areas of expense reduction that you're going to generate all but on day one? Is it cost of supplies and lab? Is it employee benefit costs? Is it professional services? Is it marketing costs? Et cetera, et cetera. Like where, where do you feel really confident about taking cost out of the business to generate more EBITDA? On the other side of that same coin, what are the top two or three areas where you're confident that you can generate more revenue out of that business than what the prior owner was able to achieve? This could, once again, be marketing dollars for new patients. It could be uh, expanded clinical treatment options. It could be days and hours. Uh, It could be insurance reimbursement rates et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if you choose to buy a practice for more than five times EBITDA, that might be okay as long as your your lender is good with it at the point of acquisition. But 12 months down the road, you need to be able to evaluate uh, the impact you have made on that business from a revenue generation standpoint and a cost containment standpoint. And then you need to look at the EBITDA of the business 12 months down the road relative to what you paid for it. So if you paid six times EBITDA and you've been able to generate more revenue, greater cost containment, and more EBITDA dollars 12 months down the road, and now that six times EBITDA multiple looks like 2.7 times EBITDA, I would say that that was a good acquisition. Yeah, you overpaid for it, but you were confident about the impact you could make and the results you're able to drive, and it all right-sized itself. Uh, six to 12 months down the road. We call this dollar cost averaging, okay? And it's a really important principle to understand as it relates to acquisitions. So I mentioned de novos before. And more and more people are... Um, more and more people have had bad experiences on acquisitions. The culture mishmash, change management, maybe some of those forecasted cost containment measures and revenue generation measures that fail to materialize and and the acquisition was a headache, and it underperformed. Yeah, that's that's not uncommon in our world. All right, so there are more people that are saying, "Well, you know, if I'm going to pay that much, why don't I just staff it with my team, use my marketing smarts and the marketing agency I work with, and drive more impact into uh, a business that was set up the right way the first time versus having to go back and redo all of it." So there's a lot of merit to that. Um, and if we're thinking about how we do how we execute on a de novo strategy at scale it's different than a de novo strategy when it was just essentially one at a time you know the the banks historically don't like lending money in de novos until you've gotten proof of performance in the prior de novo, and then they'll look at the next one. But if you wanna execute a growth strategy that's based around de novos, you gotta have more than just proof of concept. You gotta have proof of performance and the ability to forecast what the outcomes are gonna be. That's a completely different mindset and it it is a a class a master class that we teach called de novo execution. So if you're really interested in digging into uh, de novo at scale, that master class called de novo execution um, is is worth your time and effort to be there. All of that being said, one rule of thumb. This is a broad generalization here, but it's at least a starting point for you. If you're going to to execute a de novo strategy. The revenue number you need to hit at the end of the first 12 months is probably about two times your investment to get the de novo open, all right? That's not including real estate if you own the real estate. I'm just talking about the build out and the uh, equipment cost to, uh, to get the doors open, okay? So two times the investment is your revenue target at the end of 12 months. So why do I say 12 months? Well, most of us think about our growth strategy in terms of adding additional locations on an annual basis. De novos can be really challenging in that context. So if we want to do this at scale, it needs to be a 12-month mindset. There are a lot of other metrics in de novos, the way we model out these things. And, and I can't do all that on a podcast. Um, there is a, a video about it. And obviously, we teach a masterclass about it. Um, but suffice to say, if you're going to employ a de novo strategy, y- you don't want hope to be your strategy. You've got to have targets to shoot for, and you got to understand the mechanics behind it. And And really, the, the easiest way to start is to say whatever our investment is in that de novo, the revenue number we need to hit at the end of 12 months is two times that investment. This will get you in the discipline of not spending money foolishly on the investment um, to open it up. uh, And it will also get you in the discipline of of running out a 12 month forecast that yields that outcome and how you course correct every month uh, along the way. So I mentioned leverage before and and debt and banking, and you've probably also heard us talk about The way banks evaluate group practices being different than a solo practice context and the metrics that banks use. And they are numerous, but one of the the hallmarks, one of the fundamentals um, in terms of uh, lower middle market, middle market banks, uh, in terms of credit facilities, at least, is what we call funded debt to EBITDA or debt to EBITDA ratio. And that is specified in the loan documents of uh, the lower middle market and middle market lenders when it comes to credit facilities. And this is another reason that securing a credit facility is so important in terms of executing growth strategy. But usually those leverage ratios are somewhere in the high twos to high threes in terms of debt to EBITDA ratio. So rule of thumb here is probably three times debt to EBITDA. Um, and that is a number that when we start talking about seemingly overpaying for acquisitions, like I mentioned before, the debt to EBITDA ratio is a consolidated metric, meaning the entire business. And they tend to look at it on a pro forma basis. What that means is your business may have, you know, two and a half, may, may have two times debt to EBITDA presently. But after you buy that next uh, practice for six times EBITDA, that might push your overall leverage ratio for your entire business from two times to three times. So, is that in compliance with the way the bank looks at things on a pro forma basis? It's important to be able to to understand this and be able to model it to some degree um, to know that the bank is willing to continue funding your growth strategy, and then also know the the returns you need to get out of those. Uh, acquisitions and invested dollars before the bank is willing to refresh the credit facility to allow you to take down the next one. Okay, so this is uh, really, I mentioned early on, predictive metrics and things like that. This is a big one that is... uh, kind of like a silent killer, if you will. It'll it'll bring your growth strategy to its knees if not done correctly. You really want to be mindful of of what that leverage ratio looks like and the bank's appetite to continue funding. So, from an operational context, this one may be um, this next metric may be pretty self apparent, but it's worth taking a second pass at because all too often this is something that most groups um, are are challenged by and the number is zero <laughs> that's uh, zero is, is the number of hours of open share time in the coming two weeks uh that that we work with uh practice uh, groups on. Um, and and this is one that again is predictive uh because if you have an abrupt cancellation or a no-show, you can't make up for lost time and ultimately all of you get paid for your time. Um, so this is a uh, is one where, I know my personal dentist sends out uh, numerous confirmations for hygiene appointments and, and things uh, to make sure that their schedule stays glued together. Uh, and I'm still kind of amazed at how many people don't measure this, or are not mindful of it. Uh, and it's always important when you're looking at your schedule at an operational level to look two weeks out I know most of you hold um, preferred time for new patients, um, and, and that's smart when you've invested a lot of money in, in marketing and you want to have availability when the phone rings for sure to get that person in very, very quickly. That's incredibly important. But you also want to make sure that you don't have gaps in the schedule otherwise. Um that are outside of those new patient times, uh, and that you're doing everything you can to keep the schedule glued together. Uh, There's nothing worse than running a a fast-paced growing business that has holes everywhere in it, because again, you can't make up for lost time, and, and that is all revenue that's never gonna be generated. Um, so scheduling effectively is, is a hallmark of, of every great growing group practice, uh, and the number of, uh, open chair time hours in the coming two weeks, uh, would preferably, preferably be zero taken in the context of any new, patient, new, new patient treatment times. The last metric to pay attention to is kind of a combination metric and it's marketing based. Um, most I would say mo- most solo practices work with uh, a marketing agency for uh, social media, SEO, um, you know, branding considerations, and that sort of stuff, which is fine. There, That is necessary. If you're going to build a group, you really need to understand activity-based costing from this standpoint, and your marketing agency needs to be dialed in uh, to a couple of different aspects here. Um, one is cost per lead, two is cost to acquire a new patient, and three is average value of a new patient in the first year in your practice. All right. So let me rattle off those one more time. Cost per lead. That's, uh, the, the amount of marketing dollars we're spending to make the phone ring. Uh, the second is cost to acquire a new patient. In between those two is conversion ratio, which is equally important. Um, but so the phone, and not and not every time the phone rings, are we going to bat a thousand, right? So if it if we, you know, if we're focused on on a high conversion ratio, meaning um, converting the the prospective patient call into an appointment, that's critically important. So right there, what's our cost to acquire a new patient every time we get a new patient in the chair? And then when that new patient comes to see us, over the course of their first year in the practice, you know, how much treatment do they need in terms of dollars? Is it just a simple cleaning? Is it an emergency? Or is it a a cleaning with a comprehensive exam and a crown or or something greater than that? The reason this is so important is because the the first-year patient value Uh, it is the number that helps us drive revenue and it's, it's monstrously important in a de novo practice. So. What I'm saying here in the context of general dentistry is important for sure, to make sure you're getting ROI on your marketing dollars, but on a, on a de novo, it is absolutely mission critical because without it, you can't forecast that first year ending number that I referenced before. So these numbers are kind of interconnected um, and hopefully I'm doing a halfway decent job of explaining that. So cost per lead, cost to acquire a new patient, and first-year uh, patient value uh, in your practice. Those numbers nationally, and this varies a lot, so check with your marketing agency uh, if they don't already provide it, but probably somewhere between 100 to $150 per lead, somewhere between probably 250 to $300 for a new patient, depending on what your conversion ratio is again, um, and somewhere around on the low end, I'd say $800 on the high end, about $1,000 average first-year treatment value of a new patient, all right? So, 100 to 150 on cost per lead, 250 to 300 on cost to acquire a new patient. Um, those two numbers, um, less is better. Uh, and the third number, first-year patient uh, value of, of treatment, uh, $800 to $1,000 more is typically better. Assuming you're not over treating all that kind of stuff, right? So so hopefully that gives you, I know that's three metrics in one, but that's the way we evaluate Uh, marketing, not just on a number of new patients uh, each month or Google reviews, but in the holistic context of what our marketing spend is, the total budget, uh, and then the output we get from it. So hopefully all of these metrics taken in context give you a different look at how you evaluate your business overall and different areas that you might be able to improve in it. And and obviously this is something we work with our clients a lot on. um, And you know, if you need a, 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 if you want to dig into any of that, happy to take calls on a one-off or trade emails or anything like that. So, hopefully, you've gotten a lot of value out of this one. It's a little bit lengthier episode, but this may uh, drop the week of uh, Memorial Day, and figured you guys and gals might uh, uh, want to spend a little bit more time listening. All right, I'll be right back with some additional thoughts and to wrap up the show. Thanks, everybody, once again, for joining me on the podcast today. Really appreciate you being in the audience, like I mentioned before. Really appreciate all the kind words and how often you uh, share our our podcast. uh, And that is really the way we broaden our audience. And um, uh, and we're grateful for that uh, and want to thank you a ton for it. I want to take just a quick second to recap the uh, Fort Lauderdale event. Uh, of about a, a week or so ago. And it was building your enterprise platform. This was a an event that was kind of targeted at the five to 50 location type group size. And we had probably an equal number that were between one to three locations, three to 10 and 10 to 20 or, or thereabouts. Um, and had about uh, 40 some odd different businesses represented, if I remember correctly, um, between about I don't know, 70 and 80 people total. Uh, So this was a a different sort of an event than what we've done in the past. Typically, our subject matter, we focused more on the um, uh, emerging group space, the one to five, you know, uh, scaling from clinician to CEO, like we're going to be doing in Phoenix this fall, once again, um, with Dr. Mark Costas and the Dental Success Institute. But You know, this uh, building your enterprise platform was a different phase of growth, and we shared uh, a lot of new subject matter that we got a lot of good fanfare on um there are a couple of different segments we need to tweak and improve uh for next year when we host the conference again but you know for the first time having done it and kind of flying blind on it um I, i think the the feedback was very complimentary overall uh and it seemed that a lot of people got a lot out of it and i think this is a a a different phase of growth for most of you in the audience that, you know, you're pretty bullish on your ability to get from one to five locations, just through effort and hard work, you, you can kind of outwork your problems, so to speak. And as long as you don't put a hole below the waterline in the boat, you're not going to sink it. That's a little bit different when you Make the decision to go beyond five locations, six or more. And, and am I going to centralize? Am I going to build a call center? Am I going to recruit a C-suite team to to lead the business and complement our efforts? Who are they? What do they do? You know, how am I really going to scale the business? And and if I choose to do that. A- am I certain about the journey at hand? And do I know that I'm building a more valuable company while I'm doing it, or am I just scaling a bunch of chaos? And that was what we endeavored to to solve um in Florida together. And I, I think, it was a fun uh, event to do. It was <laughs> because so much of it was new. It was a little bit anxiety filled for us to be perfectly candid with you. Um, these things are never easy, but judging from the feedback, I think we hit most of our marks. And like I say, there are a couple of things we can fine tune and improve for the, the next time. So very well received and um, I- I'm glad we did it. I'm glad we took a risk and I think this is something we can improve upon. And and I think even for those of you in the audience who are not in Fort Lauderdale with us, um, there, there are more, there's more guidance, there are more options, there's more application for those of you who are looking to go from five to 10 to possibly 20 locations. All right. And I want to take a second to kind of talk about that because when we look at all the DSO conferences out there, you know, again, they're panel driven by people who've built Multiple hundred location groups and you're sitting in the audience at three locations thinking, wow, I'm only 300 locations behind that guy, you know, or that girl and and there's nothing to apply there. And so we really want to focus more on not just those wanting to build a small group but those wanting to scale a group and and really build a an enterprise worthy of evaluation and effort to do it and and I think there is ample opportunity to do that and I think in the coming years you're going to see a lot more people um committed to that journey versus just a, a an abrupt sale in, in the short run. So um that was uh that was a fun opportunity and and I think for those who didn't attend the conference, um, there will be the opportunity. we're going to do it again next spring. We're, we're working on locations and and hotels already and dates and everything. that's a good ways out. Uh, but probably going to be very late April to do that. So stay tuned for it. There'll be more information coming. And for those who were not able to attend the Scaling from Clinician to CEO event with Dr. Mark Costas last year in Denver, uh, we're going to be uh, releasing um, information on that. It'll be October 11th through 13th. It'll be in Scottsdale, we're firming up uh, the hotel and the room block as we speak, uh, and we'll be announcing that conference in the in the coming week. So hopefully there'll be some um, application that you might want to join us for that one as well. Stay tuned for it. More information coming. So that was a lot today, but I hope you certainly got a lot out of it. Um, and uh, I, I hope you find a lot of merit in our content. Again, we work really hard at it and we appreciate all the, the fanfare that you give us. If you got questions, feel free to submit them directly to me at Perrin at PolarisHealthCarePartners.com. Uh, and of course, you can find out more about everything we do on our website at PolarisHealthCarePartners.com. Thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber. We'll see you on the next episode.